Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. The world has changed dramatically in the past month and new alignments, new organizations, new shapes in the relationship between countries are emerging, but also so are new demands on precious materials. To look at these, we have two specialists here today, two friends of mine, uh, Sheila Hollis, Acting Executive Director of the United States Energy Association. Sheila has been for many years a lawyer in Washington dealing with energy issues and especially with natural gas. And I'm delighted to welcome to the broadcast Charlie Riedel, Executive Director of the Center for LNG at the Natural Gas Supply Association. Welcome to the broadcast, both of you. The issue before the House today in this alignment, this realignment of the world, where we now have an incredible new thing called green metals. Uh, those are the metals that are essential for, for alternative energy, that are essential uh, in today's energy supply, electricity primarily, but also in chips and other things that are in everything from quite literally from your washing machine to your power plant. And uh, the president, Mr. Biden, has declared that the United States will take up the slack in Europe where there is a profound shortage of natural gas for heating, but also for making electricity, as about 50% of the natural gas burned in Europe comes from Russia. And it is now in severe restriction and with sanctions, it may be in even greater restriction going forward. In fact, the Europeans have talked of the day when they will not import any gas whatsoever from Russia. Uh, yet, can we actually make up the balance? Can we, as the president has suggested, uh, send enough of our liquefied natural gas, that is gas which has been compressed till it is a liquid, put on special tankers and shipped? Uh, that requires a very special infrastructure. So, Charlie, can we do it? Do we have the gas and do we have the infrastructure? Or will the Europeans have to look somewhere else or even... Uh, make a concession to Russia? Well, Luan, I think there's probably three questions in there. The first one, do we have the gas? The short answer is yes, we have the gas. We have enough gas that we can absolutely satisfy uh, demand to Europe. I think the next question is, can we do it? The uh, next answer there is also yes. So good news so far. Uh, there is a bit more complexity to the, the second part of your question. Can we do it? The answer, like I said, is yes, but it's going to take a bit of time. It's not something that we're going to be able to solve this year, next year, two, three years from now. It's going to take five, seven years time. And I think that we have to be cognizant of the amount of time that it's going to take to build out the necessary infrastructure. And it's not just here, it's also in Europe. So if we're going to build LNG infrastructure here, we're going to continue to need strong signals from Europe that we can continue building this. Uh, and we also are going to need strong signals from Europe that they're going to build the necessary infrastructure to import that LNG that we can produce here. They call it an LNG train, am I right? That's right, that's and right. That involves the liquefaction there in the US and the receiver to convert it back to gas get it on shore in Europe. So we cannot, in fact, help Europeans today, tomorrow, or next winter. Is that what you are saying? 
Well, we are helping them already. I think that that's sort of an important part. And I know that Sheila probably can talk a bit about this as well, but we are helping them already. So if we look at what we've already been sending to Europe, we've been exporting LNG to Europe since 2016. So we've been sending LNG there since we've been exporting from the lower 48. Uh, and we have sent roughly 80% of our gas or LNG that we are exporting this year, roughly 80% of that has already gone to Europe. So the vast majority of what we're producing here in the United States and sending out uh, is, is headed to Europe. And that's obviously the market at work. Sheila, this calls for us to sort of open the spigots as it were for natural gas, to drill more, to put in more pipelines, but there's considerable domestic hostility to that. The whole of the, you could see in the left wing of the Democratic Party is very sensitive to the subject of natural gas because it is a fossil fuel and does contribute to greenhouse gas buildup although much less so than a coal. How do we deal with that, Sheila? Well, the reality is that because of the CO2 issues, it's going to be an ongoing issue that has to be contended with by the natural gas uh, industry, both domestically, just utilization here in the, in the US, but then as we send it, as we send the natural gas in liquid form throughout the world where it's needed, primarily Europe right now, but we've been sending it to, to Japan and other countries as well because it's been needed there too. But we have the gas. The question is, can we build the infrastructure necessary to enable it to get to, first of all, the point of export, and then at the export point to have adequate export facilities that can move the gas uh, internationally. And so that's a whole series of steps. There's issues at every, every step of the way, every time you do anything major that actually matters in, in energy, you have to go through a lot of hoops and uh, whether, it, certainly with respect to natural gas, uh, it's a sophisticated group of players. They're used to dealing with regulatory agencies, both uh, at the state level and the federal level, not just one, but many, 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 in order to get the facility built and then to move the gas out. There also is economic risk, isn't there? These uh, terminals cost, I understand, about 20 billion with a B dollars. Uh, if you build a lot of export terminals, if you get all the permissions, if you get the gas supply assured, presumably from fracking in some of the productive fracking fields, uh, you also have the problem that Europe may go off and buy somebody else's gas because they can get it through a pipeline cheaper. At some point down the line, they may get it from Iran or they may go back to getting it from Russia, which is right there and which has quite remarkably cheap gas, or it might be piped in overland from Asia. There is economic risk too, is there not? All the way. And uh, the, the, on the other side of that equation though, Llewellyn, is that China and other countries, Japan, uh, <clears throat> South Korea are going to need natural gas uh, in liquid form for quite a while to go, Vietnam for that matter. And the, the thing that can make it so uh, utility, utilitarian is that with respect, for example, in Vietnam, if you have a major electric generating facility or if you have a major manufacturing facility, you don't have to build a whole pipeline infrastructure. You can have those facilities sited where the LNG tanker comes in. Uh, thus, it makes an incredibly attractive solution to a lot of energy needs that can be handled in a way that is that is manageable uh, politically, domestically, and beyond. Tori, in your day-to-day -day work, what are the hurdles that you uh, have to get over or that you try to get the gas industry over? 
How much time do we have left on this uh, conversation? <laughs> just all the time you <laughs> need, Charlie. Just tell no, us. I, 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 so I think that there are there are a couple, right? I think that the big ones that we think about domestically, right? And, and Sheila hit on this is is the necessity of additional pipeline capacity. Uh, we've, like I said, we've got plenty of supply here uh, that we that we're well aware of, and how to extract that gas from the ground. Uh, connecting those facilities to those gas fields is incredibly challenging, right? From a regulatory process. Uh, and, and so building those pipelines is the first challenge that we have to overcome once we've gone through the permitting process to build our facilities. Uh, and then once we've done that, to your point that you were just uh, discussing with Sheila, finding the long-term agreements and finding buyers who are willing to sign up for 20 years because you're spot on in that $20 billion number. No one's going to, uh, to fund a $20 billion project and, and have a stranded asset that is no longer useful. Uh, and, and so finding those long-term agreements does take time and it is a challenge associated with that. And then further, once you get it from the, the ground, through the pipeline, to the facility, liquefying it, you still have to load it on a boat and take it across the ocean. Uh, so those are all things that, that are, are unique challenges to what we're talking about here. But what it's able to do is once it does arrive is deliver a low cost fuel uh, that is clean, it's reliable, right? And so we're talking about things that are important as we think about energy security and getting back to your point around the potential of what Europe might do. I don't know that there's a better plan that they've got right now than importing LNG, right? I think that that's the, the, the most viable option that they've got. And it's why you've seen the announcements that we've seen over the last couple of weeks. I think it's also why we've seen the change in tone from this administration and why they're doing what they can to try to help Europe find their way out of the, the unfortunate situation that they're in with Russia weaponizing natural gas. How many export terminals do we have? The only one that I personally know, because I used to have a boat on the Chesapeake Bay, is on the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, That's right. How many do we have operational? So there are six that are fully operational. The seventh has just started, uh, and it's in commissioning, which will make it operational. Uh, you could probably guess in the next month or two, it will become fully operational. And then there are a couple others that are currently under construction. How, what is the shipping position? Uh, these are not oil tankers. These are purpose-built tankers for carrying liquefied natural gas. If people want to see one and you're in a harbor where there is one, you'll be able to tell it immediately by the big dome shapes along the, along the deck. Uh, what is the shipping situation? I understand Qatar, uh, another major gas producer, maybe one of the largest gas producers has just bought five or six new tankers or ordered them uh, mm -hmm. as a purpose built indeed. Yep, that's right. So, so similar to the lead time, uh, we can build ships a little bit faster than we can build LNG facilities, but similar to, to what you're talking about, there is an order book and there are, uh, the vast majority of these LNG tankers are built uh, in South Korea. Uh, and so when we think about that, there is an order uh, and there is a order book and the order in which they get built. So we're talking about several years, but we have enough vessels on the water right now uh, that we're, we're contracted and we have enough floating uh, LNG transportation that, that exists uh, to satisfy what we're talking about as far as the agreement that was announced out of the White House. Uh, and there will be enough new vessels coming online between now and 2030 to satisfy that 50 billion cubic meters that's being discussed. Sheila, do you see any change in attitudes to producing and exporting natural gas in the U.S. since the Russian-Ukrainian crisis has begun? Has any of the environmental opposition ameliorated? I 
believe it may be uh, softened for the sh for the uh, short to midterm. I don't believe that it's going to go away. I, I don't think there's any easy way to make the to make anything happen of this magnitude in the country, regardless of what infrastructure you're building uh, or what industry you're building. Uh, I do think it will remain an ongoing saga uh, of uh, slugging your way through the morass of regulations, both state, federal, of every conceivable variety, and the opposition, uh, the strong opposition that comes from the from um, uh, entities. Uh, financing, financing communities, uh, uh, universities uh, that may have a particular interest in reducing CO2, and this is one because of the magnitude of it, and it's so obvious, that is one that will be lit on uh, in the regulatory setting, in the judicial setting, and in the legislative, uh, both state and federal, because that's the nature of the beast. It's big, it's important, and it, it impacts a lot of people. And very, very sensitive about environmental justice too. Who gets the work, where they're cited, how they're cited, how carefully they're cited, and extreme attention to environmental related issues at the facilities and on the pipelines. Um, that's very interesting. Charlie, do you feel that we need uh, federal assistance here? Should there be some federal preemption uh, so far before the start of the Ukrainian hostilities? the administration had quite an ear to those environmentalists. Um, it was very sensitive to their concerns. Um, that clearly has changed as the world has changed. Uh, you think the government should take something, uh, some action that is de facto preemptive? Well, I think that we've seen, we've seen steps or at least a demonstrable attempt by this administration to embrace uh, as it relates to LNG exports uh, in the last couple of weeks, and and as the buildup and the and the increased pressure that Russia is putting uh, on Ukraine, and I think the threat that they're posing to the rest of Europe, I think that the reality is 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 they've taken steps to to try to dissuade Russia from taking any further steps. I think if we're talking about trying to build LNG import terminal or export terminals here in the United States, uh, what we've advocated for and will continue to advocate for is to allow the markets to do the work here, right? And I think that if there is strong enough demand signals out there in the market, uh, government intervention, really what we would ask for is just an expedited process uh, that is clear and consistent as far as the review of these applications. Sheila's already touched on the, the numerous uh, regulatory reviews that these facilities have to go through, not to mention then the additional court challenges that they face once granted their authorizations. Uh, so, so I think anything that can be done to, to expedite or potentially streamline that process would be welcome from the industry. Sheila, can you tell us quickly something about the U.S. Energy Association so that people understand that it is what it is not, which sure. is really the essential thing? Yep, nonprofit, non-lobbying, nonpartisan. Uh, and we represent all aspects of the energy industry. Uh, we have uh, a board uh, composed of a, uh, of a series of different players. We have, uh, we have uh, very uh, focused on all aspects of energy and we do two primary things. We work throughout the world in, in hand in hand with the US government, uh, the, uh, the State Department, the Energy Department and USAID in particular, 104 countries we've worked in, we work very extensively in Ukraine and all over Eastern Europe, but also South America, Central America, Africa, India, other parts of Asia to make the world a better place, to make uh, energy more available, more accessible, more safe. 
and, and, and more environmentally attractive too, let me say. But you play the hand that's dealt you too. 30% of the world has no energy, zero energy. I was at the CIRA conference, the, the Minister of Energy in Nigeria said it best. 30% of the world has no energy. And he said, we would love to be rid of carbon. We don't even have the carbon. So you, when you hear those statements from countries that are so poverty stricken and so desperate just for basic energy supply, it brings home to you that this is a difficult journey. It affects every human being on earth. It is a human right, it is primal. Without it, you can't live. So it goes down to the very core of our being to make sure that people have food, water, energy, and to survive, and that's the way it's going to be. And it's not an easy journey. It's hard. We have to we have to keep working. We have to keep searching. As a generalization, Sheila, technology is able to clean up its own messes, give it time, uh, enough brain power put to an issue. About um, oh, some years ago, and during the Obama administration, your organization, the U.S. Energy Association held a ministerial on carbon capture, utilization, and storage. And it looked very promising. Uh, and clearly, you were much involved, or USEA was much involved in, in pushing carbon capture so that we can burn more fossil fuel. How is that coming? Very, very strong. In fact, uh, just tomorrow, the day after tomorrow, we'll be having a major program on it. We work, we're working very closely with DOE on this right now. Uh, and we made significant progress, but we have many miles to go. This is a complex topic. Uh, where do you find the storage sites? Where they are they appropriate? What are the steps that need to be taken, basically the uh, yeah, environmental associate environmental issues, but also with respect to uh, indigenous peoples, having them participate, having them uh, play a role in it too, and to make sure that we can do this. But it, it can be done. It is being worked on. DOE is very, very deeply involved, but and the national labs are deeply involved. So among all the brain power that's, uh, that's involved in it right now, I think we'll get there. And uh, that will be a key part of this equation as we, as we go forward. I don't want to keep Charlie waiting too long, but uh, I, I do want to ask you, there are three categories of fossil fuel, as gas, oil, and coal. Uh, which one looks the most promising for carbon capture? Well, I, so I can tell you just from, from uh, because Center for LNG is focused on natural gas exports, obviously, that I, I know the progress our members are making on carbon, or carbon capture and sequestration uh, and, and the, the, the technology that they're able to deploy and then obviously use that, that uh, energy that they're gathering to continue powering their facilities is critical. It's something that uh, I know that, that a number of my members are focused on adding or already in the redesign of uh, projects that they're currently looking to construct. Uh, they're making a great, uh, tremendous strides in, in how they're going to deploy that technology at these large scale facilities. So there is hope that we can go on looking for natural gas, exploiting natural gas, which is such a useful fuel uh, if we could get the carbon out of it. Uh, what is the, the sense of the future in the gas producing world? Are there fields for fracking, for the hydraulic breaking up of the rock that we have not approached yet? How many years or decades or centuries of supply uh, do you feel there is, Charlie? Well, <laughs> I, so what I would tell you is that the evolution of, of what we're talking about, right, you hear, oftentimes hear that we have a hundred year supply of natural gas here in the United States if we were to sort of continue burning natural gas at the rate we're using it. 
But I think that if, if we look sort of a step back, right, and, and the technology that we've developed, the efficiency and the appliances that we use, the way that we generate electricity, all of these things continue to extend that life span of natural gas out further. And what I would say to answer the question is, we, we envision happening with natural gas and what we're already seeing happen with natural gas is natural gas sort of serving as that partner for renewables, not only here in the United States, but as we're starting to export it with increasing uh, efficiency to countries that are looking towards renewables as, as a, the main mix of their energy future, utilizing natural gas as that partner to underpin uh, renewables to make sure that the reliability of their grid is, is strong uh, and utilizing natural gas in a way that, that is uh, efficient and effective. Uh, that's, that's where we see it going. I know that that's where our members see it going is that natural gas will play a large role in expanding the adoption of renewables in the future. Sheila, one of the bugaboos of natural gas, but particularly natural gas produced from fracking, uh, uh, has been the loss of methane leakage. Is that getting better? Is that under control? I because that is a very direct, uncombusted uh, greenhouse gas. I think that there's extremely increased awareness of it, and there are steps, significant steps being taken to bring that situation under control. I'd also like to note that there's a number of old gas wells, old oil and gas wells that are still that are still out there that are sort of abandoned and and all alone and lonely. And it's not just Texas, and it, it's way up into New York State, Pennsylvania. Where, where the oil and gas business first got started with spindle tops are. But that those those things can be handled. They can be fixed. Mm -hmm. It's a question of who's going to do it because many of the, the original developers, the original drillers, they're long gone. And so it needs to be a sweep through the country to deal with that immediately. And let me say- They are leaking methane right now? Yes, they're, they're leaking. Yes, they're so old, they've been abandoned. Nobody's there to babysit them. Okay. Uh, what are the other challenges you see, Charlie? Well, I mean, I think that to, to, to sort of, let me follow on to Sheila's point here about the methane, and it's a point that I think is important because when we think about this, not only from an environmental standpoint, but I represent companies that are publicly traded companies, and what do they sell? They sell methane. That's what natural gas is. So I think that there's oftentimes this disconnect between uh, when we talk about methane leaking, that it's it's something other than, than natural gas, which not the case, right? It is natural gas. And so our members are for-profit companies and they sell natural gas, which is methane. Uh, so it is in not only their best interest from an environmental standpoint, but also from a shareholder's perspective uh, that, we, that, we, that we clean this, that we do all that we can to deploy all the technology that we have uh, at our disposal in order to capture these methane leaks all the way across the value chain. And what we've seen emerging, which I think is uh, a really promising sort of development within our industry, is the idea of third-party validation that looks at uh, the entire process of from production to the burner kip, uh, what the, the, the environmental footprint of that, that molecule is. So the more that we can do that, the better that we can become as far as transparency goes and, and identifying the opportunities that we can improve along the, 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 the supply chain uh, to capture this methane and this escape gas, I think the better off that we all stand to be as an industry. Um, very well. Uh, Sheila, do you interface with the opponents of natural gas? Do you have programs that reach out to them? We try to bring uh, varying views together, but I, I've, uh, I've dealt with, uh, in a number of my, in my legal life, 
uh, multiple times, and it's very sensitive. It's it's emotional. It's environmental justice. It's sensitivity. It's it's anytime you go to build a major or develop a major energy source, no matter what it is, it doesn't matter. I don't care if it's the solar and the wind, and and you and you need the transmission lines to get it there, and you need the storage to pull together. It's a battle. It's these are big issues, big infrastructure big concerns, legitimate concerns. And so I'm used to it. That's that's the world we live in. If you wanted an easy trek, you shouldn't have gone into energy. And if you it, want it, a really easy. hard life, try nuclear. Uh, which, yes. Uh, yes. Where the, the yes, opposition is religious, uh, pathological yes, is. and religious, and very, very hard to deal with. Um, one of the things that we can do with oil is we all sort of know what a barrel is. Well, we say, a hundred million barrels. We know that's a hundred million times forty-four in, in bringing it down to gallons. But it's a measure the public understands, politicians understand it, and even journalists understand it. Uh, how do we measure gas in ways that are understandable? When you've got cubic meters, cubic feet, uh, do you have a shorthand? Something we writers can put between the commas so we can give the public a sense of the amount of the fuel? Well, I, I can tell you that uh, a single sort of large scale LNG tanker has enough natural gas on board that it can power uh, about 5 million homes for about five days. So uh, if we sort of think about that from a, a con consumption standpoint, a single tanker delivers an enormous amount of energy. And the important thing to understand is, is that LNG is when it's cooled, it's cooled to about one six hundredth of its gaseous format. So when it's really, it's it's super chilled to minus 260 degrees. And so we're able to put a lot in the liquid format when it's warmed back up uh, to, to ambient temperature, it provides in a tremendous amount of energy uh, in a single boat. And so when we start talking about that, that number of boats earlier in, in my comments, uh, the amount of gas that we are able to displace when we hear it, uh, the short answer, unfortunately, Llewellyn, is, is we haven't done a great job as an industry of making a simple conversion. The best way that I think about it is in how many homes can we power? I think if you could uh, do a equip, um, barrel of oil equivalency, that would sort of help in terms of the BTU content. That exists. We measure it in tons. We measure it in BCF. We measure it in billions of in, cubic in meters. In doing research uh, for this broadcast, I found it in tons. I found it in meters i found it in in numbers of homes and at the end i who know a little bit about this just a little bit uh was more confused than at the beginning that is our show for today thank you for coming along and just remember when you're sitting in a nice warm room or cooking dinner or feeding something that maybe natural gas is at work you cook your dinner with it it helps make electricity and it keeps an awful lot of us warm. The thing I would like you to remember is that people all over Europe today, in Eastern Europe and Ukraine in particular, who have no gas, no heat, no warmth, and probably no dinner. Be grateful. Cheers. Our program, White House Chronicle, is on offer as a podcast for you to enjoy. Full shows on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and all major audio platforms. Subscribe and take us with you in your pocket.